So Nehemiah chapter 11 at verse 1, this is God's holy word. Now the leaders of the people settled in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of every ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while the remaining nine were to stay in their own towns. The people commended all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. These are the provincial leaders who settled in Jerusalem. Now some Israelites, priests, Levites, temple servants, and descendants of Solomon's servants lived in the towns of Judah, each on his own property in the various towns, while other people from both Judah and Benjamin lived in Jerusalem. From the descendants of Judah, Athiah, son of Uzziah, the son of Zechariah, the son of Amariah, the son of Shephatiah, the son of Mahalel, a descendant of Perez, and Masaiah, son of Barak, the son of Kolhoza, the son of Haziah, the son of Adiah, the son of Joyarib, the son of Zechariah, a descendant of Shelah, the descendants of Perez, who lived in Jerusalem, totaled 468 able men. From the descendants of Benjamin, Salu, a son of Meshulam, the son of Joed, the son of Padiah, the son of Koliah, the son of Maasiah, the son of Ithael, the son of Jeshiah, and his followers, Gabai and Salai, 928 men. Joel, son of Zikri, was their chief officer, and Judah, son of Hasanua, was over the second district of the city. From the priest, Jediah, the son of Joyarib, Jachin, Sariah, son of Hilkiah, the son of Meshulam, the son of Zadok, the son of Merioth, the son of Ahitu, supervisor in the house of God. And their associates who carried on work for the temple, 822 men. Adiah, son of Jehoram, the son of Peliah, the son of Amzi, the son of Zechariah, the son of Pashur, the son of Malchijah, and his associates, who were heads of families, 242 men. Amasai, Amasai, the son of Azarel, the son of Azai, the son of Mashilamoth, the son of Immer, and his associates, who were able men, 128. And their chief officer was Zabdiel, son of Hagadolim. From the Levites, Shemaiah, son of Hasub, the son of Azrakam, the son of Hashabiah, the son of Bunai, Shabbatai, and Jozebad, the two heads of the Levites, who had charge of the outside work of the house of God. And Madaniah, son of Micah, the son of Zabdi, the son of Asaph, the director who led in thanksgiving and prayer. Bakbukia, second among his associates, and Abda, son of Shemua, the son of Galal, the son of Jeduthun, the Levites in the holy city, total 284. The gatekeepers, Akub, Talmon, and their associates who kept watch at the gates, 172 men. The rest of the Israelites with, their, with the priests and Levites were in all the towns of Judah, each on his ancestral property. The temple servants lived on the hill of Ophel and Ziha and Gishpah were in charge of them. The chief officer of the Levites in Jerusalem was Uzi, son of Bani, the son of Hashabiah, the son of Madaniah, the son of Micah. Uzi was one of Asaph's descendants, who were the singers responsible for the service of the house of God. 
The singers were under the king's orders, which regulated their daily activity. Pethahiah, son of Meshizabel, one of the descendants of Zerah, son of Judah, was the king's agent in all affairs relating to the people. As for the villages with their fields, some of the people of Judah lived in Kiriath Arba and its surrounding settlements, in Dibon and its settlements, in Jechab Zeal and its villages, in Jeshua, in Molada, in Beth Pelet, in Hazar, Shuai, in Beersheba and its settlements, in Ziklag, in Mekona and its settlements, in Enrimon, in Zorah, in Jarmuth, Zanoah, Adalom and their villages, in Lachish and its fields and in Azekah and its settlements. So they were living all the way from Beersheba to the valley of Hinnon. The descendants of the Benjamites from Geba lived in Michmash, Aijah, Bethel, and its settlements, in Anathoth, Nob, and Aniah, in Hazor, Ramah, and Gitaim, in Hadid, Zeboim, Nabalat, in Lod, in Ono, and in the valley of the craftsmen. Some of the divisions of the Levites of Judah settled in Benjamin. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Beloved, it's in that great psalm of Messiah, the Messianic psalm number 110, that this statement is made. It's verse 3. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. That's the King James Version. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. The New American Standard Bible translates it, thy people will volunteer freely in the day of thy power. A verse like that points us to the sovereign saving power of God. And it's a verse which describes the practical effect of sovereign grace and saving power in a person's life. Did you see those, both those things? When God's Holy Spirit applies the salvation purchased by Jesus to a man or woman or boy or girl, a person is made willing. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. Willing to do all that God desires. Willing to do all that God might call that person to do. Willing in general to believe. Willing to repent. Willing to obey. And then for each one of God's children in different ways, willing to, call, to uh, answer the call and follow the call in different ways upon that person's life offering themselves as living sacrifices in view of God's mercy. Well, we see a very interesting and instructive case study of that statement in Psalm 110 here in Nehemiah 11. You remember the temple has been rebuilt. The walls and gates have been repaired. But there was still an issue that needed to be addressed. And the issue is mentioned back in chapter 7, Nehemiah 7, verse 4. Now, the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it, and the houses had not yet been built. There's the issue. There's the concern. Few 
people. Here, there is not a problem of overpopulation that we sometimes hear about, but in this case and in that time, with respect to Jerusalem, the issue was underpopulation. Few people. Underpopulation can be a very significant issue. You know, earlier in Canada's history, the province of Quebec had a higher birth rate than all the other provinces. That led to a particular saying that was coined in the province of Quebec. La revanche du berceau. The revenge of the cradle. The revenge of the cradle. A higher birth rate among the Quebecois in Quebec was thought to be something that would secure for them the preservation of their culture. We'll simply just outnumber them. The revenge of the cradle. But by May 1988, I dug up an old article. Quebec's fertility rate stood at only 1.4 children, below the 1.7 average for the rest of Canada, and below what sociologists say uh, is needed to maintain a, just maintain a stable population, 2.1 children. Quebec had fallen below that. Nicole Bordeaux, the president of the Nationalist Saint-Jean-Baptiste Society of Montreal, said, it is a grave problem for the Québécois. If the population falls, then we will have a harder time maintaining our identity and our culture. Well, it was a situation not dissimilar from that that Nehemiah faced here in Jerusalem. Not enough people. Too few. Nehemiah saw the underpopulation issue as well. And so what do we read there in the opening verses of Nehemiah chapter 11? Now the leaders of the people settled in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of every ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city while the remaining nine were to stay in their own towns. And then verse 2, the people commended all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. The King James has verse 2 as, and the people blessed all the men that willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. That reminds us of those words that we began with in Psalm 110, verse 3. Thy people shall be willing in the day of your power. Well, here all the people blessed, the people blessed all the men that willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. We're going to focus on these two verses this afternoon. Though obviously there's much more in the chapter and many more lessons that we could see in this chapter as a whole. I mentioned it already before we read, this is a chapter of lots of names. Most are not very meaningful to us at all, Uh, but these names were meaningful to the people in that day, and they're meaningful most especially to God. God knows his people. He knows 
Jesus knows his sheep by name. And that shouldn't surprise us that these lists are meaningful. Imagine a history of our own congregation here at some point being written. And in that history would be recorded the names of families. You'd probably listen for your own family name, I think. Hey, I was, I was there. I was there. And each one would be significant. We'd be very careful in both writing the history and in hearing it. We'd be very careful with family identities. You mentioned an Olivia. Is that Olivia Alexander or Olivia Newdorf? Because there were two Olivias, you know. Or you mentioned Joshua, Paul or Zydervane. You see, these names are important. And getting them right is important. And they're here in God's inerrant and infallible word. Some names remind us of great gospel lessons here in Nehemiah 11. In verse 4, it mentions the descendants of Perez. The descendants of Perez. That goes back to the story in Genesis chapter 38 with Judah and Tamar. And the children, one of whom was Perez. That whole sordid story of Judah and Tamar. But a reminder to see his name here in a genealogy in the list of God's people to remind us of God's grace and mercy to sinners. The Bible tells us people's stories, but people are never the heroes of the stories in the Bible. They all have their sins and moral failings. Increasingly, our culture is a cancel culture. You probably heard that language. Things are discovered about people in history, and uh, the myth of that person is exploded. And you hear people say, how can we honor them? How can he or she have a statue? Let's tear it down. You know, there's lots wrong with cancel culture. But in a sense, it doesn't go far enough. It doesn't go far enough. There is no one righteous. No, not one. If we want to look back and only honor people that have perfect records, there'd be no history at all. No history at all. The Bible reminds us over and over again. We've been reading through Genesis and the story of Jacob and Esau. And now we hear a Perez here. No matter who you look at in the Bible, even the man after God's own heart, the sweet singer of Israel, David. We sang Psalm 51 this morning and this afternoon. No, there's no one righteous. No, not one. The Bible is the story about God and God's mercy and kindness to his people even as it's the announcement of his justice toward his enemies. But it's the story of God's mercy and kindness to sinners, to the praise of his glorious grace. Even as we have this list of people, the hope is not in people, but in our God as our Savior in Jesus Christ. And that's what we'd want to point to people if ever a history of this congregation would be written and names were there, and maybe your name would be there. I know what you'd say. 
You'd say there, but for the grace of God go I. This was not us. This was God. Merciful to sinners. Yes, our names are written there. But there's a name that's written over and above them all. The name that is above every name. The name of the Lord Jesus. But names are in the Bible. And names like this are important. And they're important also to remember here in God's greater purposes. These are still uh, careful family lines and tribal lines until Messiah would be born. That's what we need to remember whenever we read these genealogies as well. That's part of the bigger purpose that's very careful because the promises of God have been made and they will be fulfilled in exact detail that the Savior would come from the tribe of Judah, from David's house, That's why there are these important genealogies at the beginning of the Gospels, like Matthew and Luke. And these lists of names fit into that pattern as well. A chapter like chapter 11 is a picture and snapshot of Christ's church, isn't it? Here at this time with these names, this gives us an idea of the body of his people at that time, some of these names. And And it's interesting that interspersed in this chapter are the different jobs that they perform. You you heard them. Uh, Singers and those who were involved in the outward work of the temple, the outside work, whatever that was, it's hard to know, but they were doing it. List of different people with different jobs to do, but they were all needful and all useful in God's kingdom. We see here particularly the Old Testament worship being alluded to. There are presenters, those who led in the, in the singing and musicians. There's obviously things connected here to the temple worship of the Old Covenant, but we see how careful God is in how he is to be worshipped. All these things are laid out very carefully according to the word of God. And that carries on to our day, though Christ has come and the shadows are past and the temple is destroyed. Always in worship, there are still outward ordinances and the inward heart attitude that we bring to worship. And both are important. And in everything in the Christian life, whatever the work is, wherever the worship is, everything in the Christian life, there is to be a willingness, a readiness to listen to God, to obey him, and to serve him. So that brings us back to our verses that we'll focus on this afternoon, verses 1 and 2, and the willingness of the people. Now, it's an interesting situation in which willingness is mentioned. I don't know if you remember reading this before, but here is a casting of lots for who was going to live in Jerusalem. The leaders of the people settled in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of every ten to live in Jerusalem. The holy city, while the remaining nine were to stay in their own towns. So what are we reading about here? We're reading about a tithe. This is a tithe, but it's not a tithe of money, and it's not a tithe of flocks or of the produce of the field. It's a tithe of people. It's a tithing of the people. So that one in ten were set apart for a special purpose. Lots were cast, one in ten, 
And we have the English word decimate. That comes from a kind of a grisly uh, background where one in ten people would be executed as a statement. And that was called decimating people. That's where that word comes from, uh, decimal ten. Uh, but here it's a, it's a tenth, not for destruction, but for building up Jerusalem. The way that the Lord would build up Jerusalem. And it's a tithe of people. We need to remember that in Israel, lots were cast in this way as a way of determining God's will. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord, Proverbs 16, 33. And so that was the context, but verse 2 highlights still the willingness. Even in that context, the willingness. Perhaps some commentators say that uh, there were those assigned by uh Lot in chapter 1, and then the willingness was volunteers, additional volunteers, while others say, no, that uh, it's speaking of verse 1, that these people did it willingly, too, in response to the call of God, issued through the casting of lots, and they willingly offered themselves in response to that direction from the Lord. And we have to think about that. This is not just, it's easy to read, but you have to think of what that meant for people's lives. This involved a great commitment, a change, and a a great challenge was involved. Matthew Henry spends some time, though he looks at it from a negative angle, really, on why some might not want to have lived in Jerusalem. So that if the lot fell to them, they'd say, oh, no, not me. He said to live in Jerusalem was greater accountability, living there in the holy city, right with the temple. The whole eyes of the world on you. More scrutiny than out in the country where you can just do what you want to do. We were driving to Colorado several years ago and and Graham was looking through the fields in Nebraska and he said, I'd love to live here. You could do anything you want. It's just so out in the country. Nobody sees what you're doing. And not in Jerusalem, not in the holy city. There'd be greater exposure to persecution, perhaps, being right there in Jerusalem. There'd be less of an opportunity for generating wealth through the predominant form of doing that then, through the agriculture and the farms out in the country. You have to live in the city. And so it was a great commitment, this tithe of people. But they did it, willingly. Imagine if if we did something like that with our new building. Here we're having this new building in Russell, and we said, well, you know, we really, we need to really have this ministry in Russell, uh, you know, do well, and and we need people here. So we're going to cast lots here in the congregation, and one in ten are going to have to move to Russell. You know, I know some of you live out in the outskirts for different reasons, but one in ten, you come and live in Russell. Now, we don't do that sort of thing. We wouldn't do that sort of thing. But, you know, sometimes in the church, as I read these two verses, sometimes in the church, there are calls that are made by the church, by congregations. Last week, we had one in the bulletin, pray that God would move in the hearts of individuals and families to consider moving to be part of a new church plan in Western Ireland. Now, we don't have infallible revelation through the casting of lots the way they did to say, all right, you're going to Ireland. Uh, But there are calls upon us, and sometimes specific calls to move 
and not an easy thing at times uh, to be involved in the work of the church. And so maybe in a general way, a question would come to us, am I willing to put the Lord's house, the Lord's work, the Lord's kingdom first in, that, in a very practical way? The leaders did that. It seemed they were leading by example, and that's good, but citizens of Israel also did it. We know now that there's no holy city. There's no holy city of God. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. But we can think in terms of the temple of living stones that is the church. Or of God himself, because Jerusalem was the place where he chose for his name to dwell. There was a special nearness to God in Jerusalem. And so this, this can be expanded out from this real historical context in the history of redemption with a holy city and with lots being cast and with people being called to go there and willingly volunteering to live in Jerusalem. I think we can expand it into general spiritual principles even in our day in lots of different ways, personally and corporately in the church. And it comes back to this word willing. Am I willing or unwilling as I think about being close to God? That's what it represented to be there in Jerusalem. Am I willing or unwilling to be involved in his work? Remember, willingness marks a child of God. In the day of they will be, your people will be willing in the day of your power. The Hebrew word for willing is the, basically the same as the name Nadab. Often that name has bad connotations with Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 11, priests who did not worship God as he had commanded and were struck down by the Lord. But it's the root word for that word, willing. So I think we can remember it that way in terms of the name itself. Am I a Nadab? Do I have a willing heart in the Lord? The people commended all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. Do I have a willing heart in the Lord? Often, even in the church, people have a different concern, a a different preoccupation. Paul sadly writes in Philippians 2.21, for everyone looks out for their own interests and not those of Jesus Christ. Judges 5.2, though, in that song, when the princes in Israel take the lead, when the people willingly offer themselves, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Willingness marks the people of God, or it ought to. Exodus 35, 29, all the Israelite men and women who were willing brought to the Lord freewill offerings for all the work the Lord through Moses had commanded them to do. First Chronicles 29, Now, who is willing to consecrate themselves to the Lord today? Then the leaders of families, the officers of the tribes of Israel, the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, the officials in charge of the king's work gave willingly. They gave toward the work of the temple of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 
18,000 talents of bronze, 100,000 talents of iron. Anyone who had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the temple of the Lord in the custody of, custody of Jehael the Gershonite. The people rejoiced at the willing response of their leaders, for they had given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord. And David the king also rejoiced greatly. David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly, saying, Praise be to you, Lord, the God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor, for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you, and we've only given you what comes from your hand. We are foreigners and strangers in your sight, as were all our ancestors. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name comes from your hand, and all of it belongs to you. I know, my God, that you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. All these things I have given willingly, with honest intent. And now I have seen with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you. Willing lives, willing people, willing giving. But in that passage, who is it that gives willingly? Well, it's those who have received graciously. It's those who acknowledge that everything that they have has been given to them. They are the ones who give so willingly. Willingness in the gospel is a blessed response more than a bare requirement. They gave because God had first given. And that is in terms of material things there in 1 Chronicles 29, but how much more spiritually as we remember who is the true willing servant of the Lord. It was Jesus. He said in John 10, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. How did Jesus go to the cross? He went in suffering. He went in anguish of soul. But as we heard this morning, he went in love. And he went willingly. He wasn't dragged to the cross. As the servant of the Lord, even to the cross, he went willingly. You know, as we think of these people moving to Jerusalem, moving near to where God had his name dwell, when you think of drawing near to God, remember the one who came near to us. When you think about serving God, remember the one who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. When you ask yourself, am I a willing Christian? Take time to meditate on your willing Savior. This is a word to leaders in the church. 
People can lead in the church for all kinds of reasons and with all kinds of motives. But Peter says in 1 Peter 5, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them. Not because you must, but because you're willing. As God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. I think of that as a leader, an elder in the church. But that's a question that comes to every Christian. Elders are to be examples to the flock. So here's my Christian life. Here's what God is calling me to do. In general, the things of the Christian life, but then sometimes particularly as the Spirit leads. Not because you must, but because you are willing. Is there an area of your life tonight where God's spirit by the word may have been touching? An area perhaps of worship, public or private? Of communion with God? Remember, Jerusalem represents these things. Of obedience? Of service? Where there has been, and you know it, an unwillingness. And to take time to think about that. Now, does that mean as Christians we have to say yes to everything? Every request that comes to us? No, that wouldn't be wise. Charles Spurgeon said to the students in his theological college, learn to say no. It will be of greater use to you than learning Latin. And we hear that and we say anything would be of greater use than learning Latin. What, what does that mean? But saying no, there's a wisdom to saying no. But as I thought of Nehemiah 11, verses 1 and 2, it made me want to take time to think, why am I not saying yes? Why am I not saying yes to things? Opportunities to worship. Unwillingness. Meetings for prayer. Unwillingness. Ways to serve in the church. This is a whole thing about people serving in the church. And willingness. All sorts of areas of the Christian life. It's just a very simple, but I think a very searching question. Not because you must, but because you're willing. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth thy strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power, in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew.